to treat your stakeholders, your employees, your customers, your suppliers as hostile forces is a very, very, very strange way to think when you think about it. And so I think what is needed is for organizational leaders to realize we're not trying to protect this, this fake person. We are a system. We're part of wider political and social systems. We can't create a barrier around our reputation anymore because employees are raising concerns because social media is out of control. So if we think we are running a system and not a singular entity, then that has enormous implications for how we run our business, how we treat our employees, how we treat our external stakeholders. But once you start to question that, then the whole agenda of compliance and ESG and HR really needs to start to change. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders. Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Sturluson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Art Management. I've often used the image of a boat and an ocean to describe organizations. The vision is the beautiful island that we're navigating towards. The mission is how we're going to get to our destination. And the purpose is why we got into the boat in the first place. The values are then a compass that should help us navigate through the wind and the waves and stay on track and make sure that we don't only get to our desired destination, but that we have navigated in a way that left a positive influence. I use the boat image to show that the journey is seldom calm or straightforward. Often the circumstances change rapidly and the decisions are rarely black and white and it's hard to know what is right, true and more important. We've experienced an enormous amount of change over the last years, which I guess is an understatement. And with our current political climate, polarization and media culture, there are considerable risks involved in, in every decision. And my feeling is that it's seldom been as hard to navigate as it is today. And as I talk to leaders, HR and ethics professionals, I feel like they share that sentiment. So how do we build a healthy culture with an ethical compass in turbulent times? I don't know a better person to discuss that question with than Alison Taylor, adjunct professor at NYU and the executive director at Ethical Systems. Ethical Systems is an organization which makes academic research accessible to business people, helps them assess their company cultures, and guides them in applying research-based strategies. Alison is currently writing on a book for Harvard Business Review Press on how companies can make the right choices in a turbulent world. And whenever that comes out, get the book. She is frequently interviewed on ESG, environmental, social and government issues by publications like the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times. This conversation that we're bringing to you today is, is different from our regular podcast because we recorded it at a live event 
as part of the Healthy Culture Initiative. So we have a big number of leaders, HR and ethics professionals in the audience in Sweden. The Healthy Culture Initiative was birthed out of a need that we saw at Heart Management to create a learning platform for practical conversations with researchers and practitioners about how we can build and sustain a healthy culture and how we can avoid a lot of the different issues that we can so easily end up in. So we're going to talk more about the Healthy Culture Initiatives in future episodes. But now, without further ado, let's jump into this live recorded conversation with Alison Taylor. Alison, thank you so much for, for taking the time for this conversation. And, and this, as Andrea said, it's the third in the row of our conversations on this that we call in English the Healthy Culture Initiative, but in Swedish, Agenda Sund Kultur. And, and I, I've been so excited about this conversation because I feel like there are so many topics that are so important to us right now if we are wanting to figure out how to navigate with an ethical compass with values in this very turbulent time. And, and I, I just wanted, before we jump in, I just wanted to ask you, when is your book going to come out? Do you know? I hope sometime in 2023. My first, my draft to the publisher is due this fall. So it will depend um, how many reviewers have big problems with it and how many revisions are needed. Tobias, I, I, I have a feeling I will be asking you to read some of this. Um, so uh, I'll be looking for really harsh critiques uh, during the autumn and hope that it comes out sometime in 2023. Um, and I was chatting to Anna Romberg yesterday um, and have plans to come to Scandinavia for a book tour. So I, I hope to meet you in person then. That's that's amazing. And and uh, really encourage every one of you to, to get the book whenever it comes out. So just to say, mo most of the people here in this conversation today, they're working in the public sector and they're working in roles like HR, leadership roles and and other roles, but it's a lot of kind of bigger, more complex organizations. I don't know if I'm the only one who feels kind of that this time is special. And of course, it's so easy to say that and politicians always say, this is the most important election of your lifetime. But but are we in a particularly turbulent time? I mean, I think we are. And, and for the benefit of everybody on the line, I, I live in New York. I'm, I'm calling in from New York this morning. So I think it's a, a particularly turbulent time in the US, um, but we do have a lot of uh, crises going on in the world. Those um, significantly affect the kind of leaders that we look for. Uh, there is an amazing historian called Peter Turchin who studies kind of systemic dynamics and has for a long time predicted that the 2020s will be very, very turbulent. So um, I think from a business perspective, there are um, super interesting and significant and somewhat under-discussed trends that are really dragging uh, private sector companies into roles that the government used to take on. And so what we're seeing, and obviously uh, the Putin's invasion of the Ukraine being the ultimate example, we are seeing companies being dragged into um, political conversations and taking political positions. Now that's not entirely new. We can think about the anti-apartheid movement, 
but I think the scale and reach and significance of it is new. Certainly, at least uh, from the US perspective, we seem to be paying uh, just as much, if not more, attention to what companies are and aren't doing in Russia than we are what the UN is doing or Biden is doing. So I think we really do now um, expect companies to take positions on issues where we used to uh, think that the private sector had no role. That is so, so interesting. And and in our last conversation with Mikhail Albright, I asked her the question of what what is ethics? And and so so we had a conversation about that because that's something that I feel that a lot of organizations, we don't really have a language for talking about what it is what it means. And I, I wanted to ask you, why do you believe that it is essential, or if you believe that, for organizations to talk about values and ethics? I mean, I think if you don't have values and ethics, uh, you're just a collection of people. Um, and if, if you're just a collection of people trying to build shareholder value, that's not really an organization. You don't really have a purpose. You don't really have a reason to be together. I think the reason that the topic is very complicated is that for a long time, business use the law as, as synonymous with ethics. So as long as you're not breaking the law, anything you do to create shareholder value is ethical. That's the kind of Milton Friedman argument. And now I think the situation has got enormously more complicated and people start to then ask, you know, well, ethics is a personal thing. So um, how can an organization possibly um, have ethics? And then there's a huge range of issues where, where people very often disagree. So I think corporate leaders are a little bit lost because we can no longer anchor to the law. But what do we anchor to instead? We can't really anchor to employees' personal values because they're so different. So I think a lot of companies um, are lacking a North Star. Um, and where that tends to end up is a lot of very generic, unenforceable language around things like we are committed to integrity and we do our best and that kind of thing, which sounds fine, but it's not super memorable and it's not super meaningful. And so many organizations say that these are our values and we live by them in everything we do. And if you would ask around, most people wouldn't have any clue of what they are. And, and, and we're, we're going gonna to talk more about that. But I'm thinking as we're looking at the world today, what are some of the issues that you believe that most organizations will have to grapple with as they aim to, to build a healthy and a more ethical culture and, and to, to navigate by values? And as you said, it's, it's kind of hard to know what they should be. But what are, what are some of these issues? And I, I also wanted to say that, of course, the U.S. and the and Sweden, where we are different, I think one one uh, difference is that I think the political polarization is, or it has increased more, I should say, in the U.S. over the last years than it has in Sweden. It is we are very polarized, but we have been, we have always been in terms of our political debates. Uh, so, so, so I, I think there's an we don't see that same increase. And, and, and I think also from the perspective of, of maybe thinking that 
for, for public organizations uh, as well as private organizations? What are some of the issues that you think everyone here in this conversation needs to think about as we think about values and building an ethical culture? I mean, I think the, the very short answer is that the rise of ESG um, means that we need to take into account a far wider range of environmental and social and governance issues than we used to. Those vary a lot by industry. Um, as as um, everyone will know, uh, ESG is a huge topic. There's a huge range of issues. So you have to calibrate by industry. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, the most important things will be access and affordability of medicines. If you're oil and gas, it will be climate change. If you are social media, it will be the, the human rights impact um, of, of, of the content you put out. But I think, um, all organizations will have to deal with climate change because it's a reality um, and we're starting to really experience the consequences. If I uh, give my undergraduate students a discussion question on ethics, it's quite likely they will come back and they'll have chosen examples on climate change, not fraud or corruption. So I think climate change is, is, is a non-negotiable. Um, I think something else that is a huge mega trend that all organizations in any sector will have to manage is the idea of oversight of your supply chain. So it used to be back in the 90s, you could kind of say, well, I just take responsibility for what goes on in my organization, but my supply chain, who I source from, who I sell to, uh, you know, is nothing to do with me. And now, whether it is uh, the idea of climate change and scope three emissions, which are the emissions of your supply chain, or it is uh, modern slavery and human rights in your supply chain, that's becoming regulated um, in the EU. Um, those issues, uh, because there's a lot more legal enforcement, because there's a lot more scrutiny, I think are, are non-negotiable no matter what industry you work in. And, and those are long-term trends um, that are coming to the fore for very, very, very good reason. That's so helpful, Alison. And and I, I'm just thinking, if we if think about the public sector, and we think like in in Sweden, I think a lot of participants in this conversation they might represent municipalities or regions that kind of are responsible for, for things like healthcare or transportation or, or or things like that within their different cities or or regions. Are there some things that you think are okay? Maybe it's not so much the supply chain issues, but are there other things that you think are, are particularly important there? Of course, climate change is is true everywhere. Um, I mean, certainly climate change. I think healthcare is a very difficult issue because we have um, medical advances that mean you can now get access to an enormous. Um, range of things but not uh governments can't afford to provide all those things for all their citizens so i think there are very difficult choices in every country about what the state covers what kind of provisions you have and so then you know that leads to obviously questions of kind of access um do you pr try to provide a basic level of care for everybody do you try to provide um these kind of access to more advanced things um in the us um we've been working a lot with the public sector and with government finance officers 
and are really finding a lot more political turmoil over questions of equity and fairness than they used to be. Um, and so this shows up in the US uh, over things like funding of the police, but even things like, you know, should we fix the road in proportion to where the tax is paid or in proportion to where there is a need? I suspect that in Sweden, those issues are much less contentious and there's more of a social contract around the provision of public services. In the US, that is not the case. Um, and, and, and government officials are really running into a lot of problems because the public turns up for town hall meetings, for example, during the budgeting process and is arguing in a very, very polarized way for the money to be spent um, for, for whatever that person's political priorities are. So uh, something that we're finding in the US is that, that you can't really budget um, for the public sector without running into these very, very, very polarized questions. I would be curious um, to hear from the audience if, if that's, I am assuming that that is much less of a problem in Sweden than it is here. I think you highlighted some, something there, an example that whatever uh, organization we find ourselves in, and, and you took the example of healthcare and looking at, okay, so we have this treatment it is available, but it is also costly and and who should actually get access to it. And, and even in, in Sweden, I'm, I'm definitely sure that that's a conversation. And of course, it clarifies that there are ethical decisions that that we stand for in, in, or that we stand at in all of these organizations. And you, of course, been writing a lot about environment social and governance and 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 how this growing pressure on organizations perhaps especially businesses to address certain issues that we talked about and 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 we're more and more questioning this idea that businesses only exist to maximize shareholder value and 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 so on uh, and 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 we have pressure from from different places and you've talked about that as well so but Something that I see is that a lot of organizations, because of this pressure, we talk about the good that we should be doing, uh, but we, we're we not maybe living up to it in, in the same way. And I, I think about, I had a conversation with Pahul Sharma that I think some of our participants know of. She is the chairman of um, Amnesty in Sweden and, and working a lot with Agenda 2030. and. And she, uh, they, they made a study that showed that many companies in Sweden, they spend more money on communication of their uh, sustainability initiatives than on their actual initiatives. So my question to you, and I think it's relevant to everyone in this conversation, how can organizations kind of choose the correct issue to address and make their values matter and avoid empty talk and 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 i also just wanted to connect it to because i think something we see a lot of in in sweden is the conversation about employee branding and something that i see that a lot of which is of course important but i also see that it has this tendency to pull us away from what is true and more drive us towards how can we show a good picture of how purpose-driven or whatever we are so how can we choose the right issues, make our values matter and avoid empty talk? I know it's a small question. <laughs> and so I'm gonna answer this um, in a slightly convoluted way. So, so sort of bear with me one second. But um, 
it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that companies are spending more on communicating the wonderful things that they're doing uh, than actually trying to, to figure out um, how to spend money doing the thing. What we have uh, at the moment is the ESG, uh, my favorite definition of, of sustainability or ESG that it is that it is the paramilitary wing of the marketing department. And so it makes a lot of sense at the moment to think of um, environmental and social responsibility as a form of PR. And the, the data point you've provided um, is all the proof we kind of need of that. So I think we're at this really interesting point, right, where we've seen, we start to see the Friedman shareholder value ideas start to dissolve, but we still retain a lot of the underlying assumptions. And one of the underlying assumptions is that there is a, a, a corporate person, there is an entity, and we need to protect the value of that entity at all costs. And so if you're in HR, your job is to, to protect the value of the corporate entity from allegations or lawsuits around harassment or discrimination or poor treatment of people. If you are in compliance, your job is to protect the organization from litigation or regulatory risk. And if you are in sustainability, your job is to protect, protect the organization from reputational risk. So all of this, there is an underlying assumption that there is a corporate principle that needs protecting from the outside world. And that what you need to do is to create a kind of barrier around the organization to deflect regulation and deflect reputational scrutiny. So media criticism, social media criticisms, that kind of thing. So the problem here is that we've moved on from shareholder value, but not question those underlying assumptions. So the truth is, that that, corp that imagination of that entity that needs protecting is just a figment of our imagination. A corporation is not a person. A corporation is a system, and that system relies on a network of stakeholders even to exist. So to treat your stakeholders, your employees, your customers, your suppliers, as hostile forces is a very, very, very strange way to think when you think about it. And so I think what is needed is for organizational leaders to realize we're not trying to protect this, this fake person. We are a system. We're part of wider political and social systems. We can't create a barrier around our reputation anymore because employees are raising concerns because social media is out of control. So if we think we are running a system and not a singular entity, then that has enormous implications for how we run our business, how we treat our employees, how we treat our external stakeholders. So that notional idea that we can create a fortress of reputational and regulatory protection around our organizations is, is, is something that really needs to go away. But once you start to question that, then the whole agenda of compliance and ESG and HR really needs to start to change. That is so so fascinating, and and so and I I just want want everyone in this conversation to just grapple with that idea that that so much of our focus is, and I think that's true of the public sector as well. It's just that it's not 
shareholder value, but but we're protecting reputation and we're and so on. So so it's the idea that we're protecting the organization towards out, against outside forces. What I think is is happening out of that is that when we are so focused on protection, we lose the most important thing that our values should actually lead to, which is the hard conversations about the decisions that we're making, the priorities we're making, and so on. We create, I think, very much a culture of silence because it's clear to everyone that speaking up is dangerous because it is a risk. It, it's, it's always kind of associated with a risk. And, and, and I think it kind of totally deflates the, the value of values in that sense. And, and I, we're, we're going to talk in, our, in our, our next conversation, we're going to focus a lot on, about, on a, a culture of silence. But I know that's something that you've done a lot of meaningful work around as well. So what are, what are some of the ways that you see that play out in organizations? And what are some of the ways that we can kind of empower people to to be enabled to to speak up more yeah so um i mean one of the one of the consequences of this idea that there is a, a fake corporate person that we need to protect is that it really limits our consideration of ethical issues because it means that the only ethical violation we can imagine is a principal agent problem so what I mean by that is that we have the idea that we need to protect corporate value from an employee who is a bad apple who wakes up one day and decides to pay a bribe or commit fraud or something like that. So all our ethics efforts are about protecting corporate value from an employee who is trying to undermine corporate value. The problem is that's not the only kind of ethical issue we run into. And a lot of times when employees are doing something unethical, they're doing something unethical to create corporate value. They're doing something unethical in the interests of the corporation. And even a bribe can be that. They are paying a bribe to overlook a, a rule or to win a contract or something that will benefit that fake corporate person. So part of the problem is we don't have sufficient imagination of the range of ethical issues that we need to discuss and help employees with. And that uh, uh, really, I think, limits um, the willingness and ability of employees to speak up. I think the other thing is just that we are um, unrealistic about how difficult it is to speak up in any circumstance even when there is not a power differential in the room. But if there is a power differential in the room, if the problem that you have is, is with your boss, somebody that runs your um, performance review, someone that can set your pay, um, it's obviously ridiculous um, to sit there as a corporate leader and say, hey, employee, be brave, speak up. We really want to hear about it because... Um, because very often you will be threatening that senior person. And so um, I think it's, there's no kind of big mystery why speaking up um, is has been so ineffective historically. What I think now is happening that's super fascinating is that you're much less likely to have a single employee calling the whistleblowing line. And you're much more likely that a group of employees will get together 
and they will find damaging information about something that you're doing um, internally and they will leak it to the press or leak it onto social media. So um, the, the speaking up has really kind of moved out of the domain of just calling the whistleblowing line. It's got a lot more to do with um, using information, you know, making information available to shareholders or the general public that the company would rather um, the general public didn't know about. And again, really kind of trying to pierce that boundary that we've tried to create around the organization to protect it. And so, you know, I mean, I don't think that speaking up has got uh, any easier. I think what we really need to do is spend less time saying, hey, please be brave employee and make it easier for employees to be brave and be a little bit more realistic um, about the way in which ethical problems arise. And rather than just saying they could only arise in this single one way um, that is about undermining corporate value, because the truth is, if we think about VW or we think about Wells Fargo or we really think about any big scandal recently, the problem was not employees trying to defraud the company. The problem was employees being pushed by leadership to do something unethical for the benefit of the organization. And so if we can't imagine that in our systems, then obviously we're not going to tackle those problems. That's that's so much to to unpack in that that answer. And I, I just we're, we're going to. Uh, go going into another part of that answer, but but first I just wanted to really repeat this: the importance of actually having a bigger imagination for the ethical questions that we have in our organization. And now I'm thinking from the conversations that I'm having with HR professionals and and leaders all over Sweden that that so many times we don't have a language for it, and 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 we need to have a language to talk about ethics and like Michaela said in our last conversation she said that for her ethics has become the ability to choose and the ability to make a better more informed decision and and I, I think that is so so helpful that we actually get more information up on the table and and are able to have a conversation about that but I wanted to to connect with something else in your answer here and that's the idea of this bad apple, or Svenska säger vi rötägg, in Swedish we say like rotten egg. And I think that many of us are very attuned to seeing bad apples. And I think like if we think compliance, uh, definitely now, of course, many here in this conversation are HR or leaders. I think we're very attuned to, we've learned to kind of see individual behavior. So we see people and maybe somebody in HR will be told to, okay, we have these employees that are operating in this way that is not really working and so on, but we're not as good or at, as attuned to seeing systems. And I think when we, when we talk about culture and we talk about building a healthy culture, it's important to know that culture is always co-created. It's never just the uh, character of one person it's always a co-creation and, and you uh, mentioned some scandals and you mentioned one of them was Wells Fargo so I just wanted to connect in with that and I think for most of our uh, participants we might not have heard about that but Wells Fargo it is an American bank and they uh, did something where they put an incredible pressure on their employees to sell 
services to their customers and a lot more services than the competitors were doing. So they put this incredible pressure, they call it going for great, which means that they should sell, sell eight services per customer. And what happened was that many uh, or a number of employees out in the banks, they started to uh, sign people up for services, maybe a credit card, maybe something that they had not asked for, which is, of course, fraud. And when that started to surface, the company dealt with it in the way that it fired the people. So it said, okay, these are bad apples. So we're, we're going to fire them. But ultimately, they fired 5,000 people. So there were like, there were 5,000 bad apples and one innocent banker in the story because the company and the CEO said, no, it has nothing to do with our culture. It's just the bad apples. And I, I wanted to ask you, what can we do as leaders, as HR, ethics, professionals, or other roles, what can we do to be better at seeing and recognizing when it's not just bad apples, but more seeing the system and understanding the system? Well, I think it's a real mindset shift. I mean, the, the, the bad apple idea is very convenient, and it goes back to this idea of that we, we all exist to protect this fake person, this corporate principle. And so that's really the underlying notion behind compliance is that um, you'll have a group of people, um, some of them will be bad apples, just bad people. And your job is to find and remove those bad people and then the system won't have an issue anymore. And so uh, that assumption relies on the idea that there are people in your organization who one day, just for no reason or for their own reasons, wake up and they say, today I will pay a bribe or today I will commit fraud. That's not really how human beings or organizational systems work. And the Wells Fargo example is a very good one because um, the wrongdoing was baked into the incentives, it was baked into the targets that employees were set. And then compliance was not uh, questioning the targets, compliance was engaged in removing the people that didn't hit the targets. Um, and so rather than saying that, that wrongdoing is something that just kind of springs up out of nowhere in the brains of a few bad people, it is more sensible to think, how can we design a system that makes being good as easy as possible? And so that requires looking at the design of incentives. So, um, you know, are we um, incentivizing employees to sell at all costs? Or are we incentivizing them to, to consider how a product is sold um, as well as whether it is sold? It also involves thinking about um, the way that leadership behaves. You know, are you have do you have leaders where they say, "Come and speak to me. My door is always open," and then they uh, make highly political promotion decisions. They don't listen. They talk over you in meetings. And so, I think rather than us trying to kind of um, find and remove the bad people, if we can design our systems um, so that being good is easier, um, so that speaking up is easier, so that people feel psychologically safe to, to raise concerns, so that people feel um, that they are doing something for um, an inherent purpose and not just to, to create as much profit as possible, then you will have fewer problems with bad apples. Because because the truth is um, that, that while, you know, personality obviously matters, I'm certainly not saying that individual wrongdoing is, is something that doesn't exist. 
but like we all think we're better than average drivers we all think we're more ethical than average but but all the research shows that under the right circumstances most of us can be encouraged or induced to do the wrong thing so rather than focusing on finding the bad people or individual wrongdoing, it makes more sense to focus on organizational design and designing a system uh, where, um, where these things are easier, basically. And so I really want to talk about designing that system. And that's, of course, very much of the work that, that you've been doing at Ethical Systems is, is connected to how we actually do that. And, and first... Uh, as we, we talk here about building a healthy culture, and of course, an, an important part of that is building a more ethical culture. And I say more because I think we can never have a totally healthy or a totally ethical culture, but, but still. So what are some of the things that you say define an ethical culture? Uh, so I think one of the things um, is, is certainly leadership, leadership that is uh, accountable, leadership that takes responsibility. Um, so the role of leaders is really significant because leaders set norms, they set incentive systems, um, and, and ultimately they, they are responsible for the design of the whole um, organization. So a leader does not need to personally know about wrongdoing to have some responsibility for it. When we start a new job, and this is interesting in the era of Zoom, but it's, of course, we read the code of conduct. Of course, we sign the code of conduct. But how you actually figure out how to behave is that you look at the people around you. You look at what they're doing. You look at when they have lunch. You look at what time they leave. You look at how they dress. You look at the kind of behavior that they reward. So I think leadership and, and building ethical leadership is enormously significant. Uh, the other issue that I've mentioned already that is enormously significant is the design of incentives. So how do you design your pay, your bonus system, your rewards? How do you balance individual and group incentives? How do you think about incentivizing good behavior and disincentivizing bad behavior? Someone that we we both know, Tobias, Richard B. Strong, who was, who was caught um, paying bribes, he had a bonus scheme where um, if he hit 90% of his target, he got the full bonus. If he hit 89% of his target, he got nothing. So then the question is, if, if you have a bonus structure like that, what are you really going to encourage employees to do to get to that 90%? So incentives are, I think, really, really important. I think uh, a culture that you see in, in organizations subject to ethical scandals is that they tend to have a, a, a sense of the need to win at all costs. So there tends to be a culture of intense competition. If you if you speak to um, or hear from executives at Wells Fargo or other big bribery scandals like Siemens, you'll often hear them saying, we thought we had to do it. We thought we had to do it to help the company survive. So you tend to see a very sort of um, culture of competitive threat, lots of metaphors of war and sport and the sense of employees that um, we don't really have any other choice. Um, and so we're all very, very good at justifying uh, whatever it is that we want to do. And very often when, when a company is involved in unethical behavior, people don't necessarily feel like they're doing anything unethical. They feel like they're doing what they have to do to survive. So um, I think those issues um, are all really, really important. I think the final thing I would say that happens in almost all organizations and, and certainly all like organizations I've ever worked in is that if you are a good performer, 
um, you tend to evade scrutiny. So as managers, we tend to spend all our time focusing on underperformance, trying to figure out how to make those, those employees that aren't doing a good job do a better job. Whereas if somebody is uh, achieving all their goals or hitting their targets, we tend not to scrutinize them. And so uh, if there is a leader that is encouraging their team to behave badly and they seem to be very successful and no one's looking too closely, a culture can build and spread of wrongdoing. So um, I think you also need kind of transparency. You need to fight secrecy um, and you need to really kind of build those norms of psychological safety as well. That's, I'm just gonna gonna repeat those because I think they're so important for for all of us to grasp because I think so many times when we talk about values it becomes this like inspirational now we have our values day when we talk about our values or or whatever that is but we talk about leadership we talk about incentive structures we talk about uh kind of the 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 euphemisms taller sets like the things that kind of cover up, uh, and 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 either to I'm thinking to to push us to performance or maybe in a public organization to stay within budget. We talk about good performers that uh, we can have the brilliant douchebags that we have the people who are really really great at at sales or a fantastic doctor, but they're not at all uh, acting according to the values that we say that we should hold to. So. We, we got a question uh, before the session from someone who said, so, I mean, knowing knowing all of this and we, we can sense sometimes that maybe something is wrong, but how can we actually assess whether our, we have an ethical culture or not? We would certainly say assess your culture, um, measure your culture. I think that's a lot of the time uh, going to be more effective than measuring some of the more obvious kind of compliance metrics. Um, so the the most obvious way to do that is via a survey. Uh, Ethical Systems has a survey. There are many, many surveys out there. I'll put um, in the chat if I can. We have a whole page, um, a research page on all the ethical culture surveys that exist in the world, or at least all the good ones that we found. So ours is not the only one. There are many different approaches. Um, you also, though, if 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 a, um, a culture is uh, is very unethical, it may be that employees don't trust that survey and don't trust that it's really confidential so you can also look at things like Glassdoor you can also look at social media you can also try to understand what employees are kind of saying some companies and particularly banks also do things like um, anal analyze language in emails but it starts to become a real privacy violation and starts to become a form of surveillance so uh, I don't prefer I don't like that idea but I certainly think you should measure culture you should measure things like psychological safety, trust in leadership, whether employees feel comfortable to speak up, um, that kind of thing. Um, you can also look at your speak up data. One of the problems with speak up data is no one really knows what good looks like. So if nobody is calling your whistleblowing line, does that mean that you've got no problems or does it mean that no one trusts the whistleblowing line? So uh, you have to, it's, it's not just kind of about the data, you've got to sort of analyze the data. And I think those pockets of silence where employees don't feel comfortable even to answer a survey can be highly significant as well. 
We did some work with Novartis uh, last year that was super interesting where we found that employees um, are more likely to speak up if they see a good ratio of good to bad behavior. Meaning that if you just see terrible behavior around you, you probably get resigned and you probably give up. But if you also see leaders doing the right thing some of the time, you're more likely to feel that raising, there's a point to you raising concerns. So you also want to make employees feel that you care what they think and you care what they're going to say um, and, that, uh, and that speaking up is not futile. And in many organizations, people believe that speaking up or raising concerns there's no point the boss isn't gonna listen they don't really care and so you have to really really fight against that culture that's that's very very helpful so so as Alison said you can go to ethical systems and and you're putting up a, a link as well and and they have an article about uh, uh different assessments that you can look at and and part uh, of the premise for agenda culture for the healthy culture initiative is that a healthy culture is not built on special events or uh, time-based culture initiatives, but instead it's about integrating healthy habits. And I think one healthy habit that we talked about is assess your culture. Don't take it for granted. And, and it's not something we do once and then we do it again 10 years later, but we need to do it regularly. But what are some habits that you believe, apart from assessing the culture, are critical to build a more healthy culture or a more ethical culture? What are some of the things that we need to be doing regularly to make sure that we are actually uh, building that? I think the kind of clues in the question, right? A culture is a dynamic system. So to quote Bob Dylan, you know, he said, if he not busy being born is busy dying. So if you're not working to create a culture, it's probably diminishing. So I think complacency, I think very often, and in a country like Sweden, I suspect this is the case because you have a healthy national culture. People are well-meaning. So I think probably there is very often a culture of we're good people, we're well-intentioned, we're doing our best, you know? There's nothing to worry about here. Why would we Why would we think that, that there's going to be a problem with the culture? We're a collection of great people but this is something that requires conscious planning conscious thinking about it is always moving in one direction or another if your culture is not improving it is diminishing and so i think just kind of leaving it be and assuming it will take care of itself is the biggest risk here so um and i think that can be kind of a problem because a lot of the time leaders don't really know what to do with this rather fuzzy topic, right? They they delegate it to HR or they sort of say, well, you know, we'll have, um, you know, office Fridays and we'll all meet for drinks or we'll, you know, this is about pay, this is about benefits. Whereas culture is the outcome of a million other decisions. So I think something to sort of say, I suppose, is to give the board, give the senior leadership responsibility for culture and understand this is something that needs conscious thought, this needs conscious design. And if you're not taking care of it, it's probably heading in the wrong direction. Wow, you, you said so much good and important things in that answer. So, so I mean, one of the things was just that, so to, to all of us here in this conversation. And, and, and that was actually the title that Michaela and I had chosen for our article was that it's time to kind of 
destroy the myth or the, the assumption of the good Swedish organizations with great values and that we can't just assume that we are good and we are this nice and kind people because we see so many examples and of course now when we talk about a culture of silence that it's actually really really prevalent in in Sweden and so many examples of of unethical behavior so we can't take it for granted and like you said if we don't work actively on it we're going to go in the wrong direction so i i think one of one of the habits and 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 would love to for, for you to add more but that that we see as as important is that we have to have healthy conversations around values dilemmas goal kind of competing uh goals and and ethical dilemmas and sorry and and that is something that Luis Brincelius raised a lot as well in our first conversation here but what are some of the ways that we can get better at having those conversations around the dilemmas that that we face and like you said kind of increase our uh, imagination of the ethical dilemmas that we actually face yeah so um i think one thing to think about is is rules right so so human beings can only absorb um, a certain number of rules like so if you have a very draconian compliance program with tons and tons of rules no one's going to remember and you're not going to be able to design a rule for every eventuality so the first thing i think you want to think about is how can we have rules um that are enough for employees to absorb and that really um matter and for everything we can't have a rule for how do we create that capacity in all our employees to use their ethical compass and use their ethical judgment um and so that requires really i think thinking about ethics as something different from compliance so thinking about judgment as something very different from rules um and so uh i think uh the organizations doing best here um i think some tech companies in silicon valley are having to think about this because they're finding that rules cannot cover every eventuality of kind of product design but I also have recently had um, some really, really interesting conversations with a couple of Dutch banks. So ABN AMRO and Rabobank both have ethics committees. Um, at Rabobank, this has been running for a really, really long time. So those committees, there are about 12 people, they're senior leadership, but very deliberately, they have a few people who are in their 20s or in their early 30s who are in more junior levels in the organization and they bring ethical dilemmas and they try to solve them. So these are not things where we can have rules. So, um, you know, in the banking sector, it's things like, should we invest in casinos? What should we do about um, GMOs in, in agriculture? Should we invest in these? Should we invest in rodeos? Um, and so, that, and so if you have that kind of committee and you say to an employee, you can bring your ethical dilemmas, we will debate them. We will look at our mission. We'll look at the law. We'll look at our values commitments. We'll look at what employees think. We'll look at where the world is going. We'll have an open discussion. We'll come to a decision. If you can create that kind of structure, that kind of muscle, that kind of decision-making capacity in the organization, where you're not saying everything's black and white, you're acknowledging there are a lot of gray areas like 
Rabobank could go either way on whether it should should fund rodeos or fund casinos. So let's sit and have a conversation. Is this in line with our values? Let's come to a decision. Let's make it clear how we came to a decision. So then that an individual employee, even if they don't agree with the decision, can see that it was made in a thoughtful way, can see that people listened, can see that young voices were taken into consideration. You're much more likely to be comfortable with that decision, even if you uh, don't agree with where it ultimately landed, if you can see that the process was fair. So I think that's what we have to do. I think we have to create that that ethical decision-making capacity throughout the organization. And I think we particularly need to do that because millennials and Gen Z, they don't want to be led in this very top-down way anymore. I think this is likely less prevalent in Sweden anyway. But the idea that the role of leaders is to kind of bark orders from the top, incentivize everyone to do what they're told is going away. I think now what young people want, they want to be mentored, they want to be nurtured, they want to be coached, and they want to have the ability to raise questions and have that open discussion. So I think that these kind of mechanisms that I'm describing, they're not just important for ethical culture, I think they're really important for this, the future of leadership and the future of culture in general. One last, so in terms of, of values, defining values, and and I think that's something that a lot of people have questions around. What is actually a meaningful way to define values that are not just some nice words, uh, that are not just something, a list of behaviors that, that nobody can kind of uh, internalize? What, 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 what are some, some good ways that you see organizations define behaviors where you feel that this is actually meaningful and helpful, that it's actually a tool and, and, and not just a nice paper product? Again, kind of sorry to repeat myself, but I would start by measuring the culture. If you don't measure the culture first, you won't be able to tell uh, what is an aspired value. So what is a value that you wish your organization had and you would like it to have versus what is an, a value it, it actually has. If you don't have that data, then you'll be sort of saying we have integrity or you'll be saying we're really creative and, and, and maybe you just wish you were creative. So, um, so I think that's um, really important. Understand uh, how, how employees really see the culture. And then if it isn't um, coming up in the way that you want, you need to design um, a plan and incentives um, and performance management to, to create those, those kind of aspirations. I would personally, if I was going to do a values exercise today, I would ha have employee surveys, I would have focus groups, I would do a very, very um, kind of detailed exercise to understand what people really think and what people really want and what they think the organization stands for. So I would not treat values as a top-down exercise and, and, and many people actually recommend this. They recommend that the board sort of sits around and creates the values. I would not do that. I would ask people what they really think. I would then look at, you know, what do we actually have? What do we wish we have? And I would be very, very, very kind of 
honest um, around that. Um, I think also you need to obviously look at your legal obligations, but that's just going to be a starting point. And then you need to also look at the relevant environmental and social issues. So you need to look at the law, you need to look at your environmental and social impact, you need to look at your culture, you need to bring all that together um, and create a, a few values that employees can really um, kind of focus on. And then you need to reinforce that every day in your incentives, in your um, leadership strategy and, and so on. There is the, the one thing that degrades culture quicker than anything else um, is the idea that leaders have a different set of rules from everybody else. So if leaders are trying to impose their values on the in values on the rest of the organization but they are not required to live those values then employees will see that they will recognize that and they won't believe it so even something as simple as do you require the board to do the same ethics training that everybody else has to do or is the board exempt because they're too important like so that that very kind of simple move of you know does do senior leadership have different expense guidelines do they have different training do we do we treat them as separate i would not recommend that i think you really have to get leadership signed up to the same criteria as everybody else and we have to feel that they are subject to the same rules as everybody else I'm British, as, as, as everybody would have been able to tell by now, and, and, and I don't know how much everyone follows uh, British politics, but um, Boris Johnson quite clearly set rules for the country that he then did not observe himself. And I think that is disastrous. It, it degrades the culture of our political system. It, it degrades any faith in leadership. It's, it's, it's just... There's no excuse for it. This is not a political comment. Uh, he should resign because he has broken the rules he set for everybody else. And that kind of basic, basic violation, it sounds obvious, but in many, many, many organizations, leaders behave as if they set rules for everybody else and those rules don't apply to them. So I, I find that really, really um, the most fundamental and important thing. Thank you so much, Alison. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll send the few articles I mentioned um, as follow up if anyone would like to read them. Please feel free to be in touch with me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter um, and, and would really love to continue the dialogue. I, it's a great, been a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you. And, and, and just saying that, that uh, if you are on LinkedIn and you're interested in these questions, definitely follow Alison Taylor on LinkedIn. She uh, shares so much interesting information and has so much interest. Alison, how, how do you have time for it all? I know, like, no, don't understand. It doesn't take me very long, but I like to. I like to share I did what I'm thinking about that day, and I get amazing comments and feedback. I just happen to have a really useful network, so the post takes five minutes, and then I come back later in the day, and people have made incredibly useful comments. It's 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 a wonderful thing. That's 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 incredible. I'm, uh, something that I'm amazed with you is that whenever whenever I I send you a question or something, you, I always have an immediate answer within five minutes. It's it's incredible. So so for me as well, Alison, thank you so so much for for taking the time. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. 
We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.